Uh, this is Kristen Heilman. I'm the Curator of Contemporary Art at the Baltimore Museum of Art, and I'm welcoming you to an exhibition I organized for the Hirshhorn Museum called Anne Truitt Perception and Reflection. Uh, the exhibition starts off in 1961 when Andrew it was 40 years old. So um, before we jump into looking at some of the artworks in the exhibition, let me just give you a little bit of biographical background to kind of bring you up to that point in 1961. Uh, Anne Truitt was born in Baltimore, uh, in the hospital in Baltimore. Her parents were actually living on the eastern shore of Maryland that, at that time in the town of Easton. But there was no hospital in Easton, so um, they were in Baltimore for the birth. Uh, but Truett uh, grew up, um, her, her maiden name was Ann Dean, um, so she grew up in Easton and uh, described her childhood and her later writings as um, a sort of an accumulation of experiences of exploring the town of Easton and getting to know both the natural and built landscape there. And uh, those impressions, I think, went on to inform some of the work that she produced later in her life. After living in Easton, the family moved to Asheville, North Carolina, and that's where the, uh, Anne Truitt and her younger sisters, Louise and Harriet, spent their teenage years. Their parents were actually being uh, treated, uh, voluntarily treated, at Highland Hospital, which, is, which was a progressive mental health facility in Asheville. So it was not, uh, not necessarily the easiest time for the family. And I think also those experiences, as well as the, the natural landscape, the natural mountainous landscape of Asheville, also came to influence Truett's later sculpture. Truett went to Bryn Mawr College, where she uh, graduated with a degree in psychology, and then moved to the Boston-Cambridge area, where her twin sisters were living, and got uh, a job at Massachusetts General Hospital working in the psychiatric lab as an assistant. She also um, had a night job as a nurse's aide in the same hospital, and this was in the middle of World War II, so she was working with patients, um, some of her patients, I should say, were um, soldiers who were either suffering from mental or physical trauma from the war. Uh, she met her future husband, James Truitt, in Boston, and uh, the couple was married in 1947 and then moved to Washington, D.C. At this time, Truett was uh, writing fiction. She gave up her um, job at the hospital and actually left the field of psychology and began to focus her professional efforts at writing fiction. In 1948, in uh, an experience that Truett, in retrospect, described almost as an epiphany, um, she decided that writing fiction, and particularly the, the structure of linear narrative, wasn't quite adequate for expressing what she wanted to about her experience, about her life, and um, about the nature of time. And she, she decided that actually visual art, and particularly sculpture, was a way for her to get at some of the complexities of, of experience and complexities of time. So in 48, she enrolled at the Institute of Contemporary Art here in Washington, and took classes. Um, some of the, one of the people that she met at the Institute was Kenneth Nolan, who became her friend and colleague. Um, and Nolan was the person that introduced Truett to another Washington color school painter, Morris Lewis. So throughout the 1950s, Truett was making sculpture in a variety of materials, including cast cement, marble, and clay. Um, in 1961, however, she had a dramatic change of, of um, heart or a change in the way that she produced sculpture. 
1961, Truett went to New York to see an exhibition of abstract painting at the Guggenheim Museum. And in that museum, there were the works of her, her Washington colleagues, Morris Lewis and Kenneth Nolan. But she actually left the exhibition most impressed by the work of Ad Reinhardt and Barnett Newman. Um, and this sort of informed her, uh, her sculptural practice from that point on. She returned back, back to Washington and produced the sculpture first, which is the only sculpture in the show from 1961. It's a, it's a sculpture that resembles a white picket fence. And uh, certainly, this fence evokes the fences of Easton that Truett would have grown up with. Um, it's also interesting to look at the sculpture in terms of its formal aspects. Another friend and colleague of Truett's at this time was the sculptor David Smith. And when one thinks of David Smith's sculpture, one tends to think of sculpture that's, um, that's a matter of an assemblage of parts. So really, when one looks at the sculpture, one's eye is engaged in sort of both taking aesthetic pleasure and sort of thinking out the relationships between the individual elements that are assembled to make the overall sculpture. Um, and there's some of this technique, I think, in Truett's work, especially if you look at both the front and the back. You'll see that um, while the, the sculpture resembles a picket fence, it deviates sort of from the um, uniformity of a fence, with each of the individual pickets being of different width, the intervals between the pickets being different spacings, and the points at the top of the sculpture sort of meeting at different, at different um, at different culminations. So in the central picket, those points are sort of pretty much on center. In the other two pickets, they're a little skewed. So there really is a study of formal relationships going on in the sculpture. And one might speculate, because of the different sort of individual natures of the pickets or the individual personalities of those pickets, um, that in some ways, this sculpture might relate to human dynamics and human relationships. Um, one can even think that Truett was the oldest of, of a grouping of girls, you know, three girls, and her younger sisters being twins, and perhaps, you know, consider the sculpture in the relationship to the structure of her family. Um, that certainly isn't the only way of looking at the piece, but I think it kind of expands Truett's sculpture and shows how the formal elements can be related to other ideas and perhaps be used in a metaphorical way. In 1962, um, Truett went on to produce almost 35 works. She was extremely prolific that year. And she continued her production in 1963 with approximately 17 works. Um, as you walk through the first two galleries of the exhibition, you see examples of works from this time. And I think you'll notice that they become increasingly abstract. Um, Truett's first work, which I should say is titled first, The Picket Fence, uh, was followed by a piece called Southern Elegy, which really resembles a tombstone, almost uh, in a literal way. But after sort of making these two pieces, she moves into more pure abstraction. It's also important, I think, to notice before we leave First and Southern Elegy, that in both ways, these, um, these forms or these images that Truett has created are markers of placement. The fence, of course, being a, a sort of a barrier between one location and another. And a tombstone, in some ways, functioning in uh, a similar manner as sort of a, a marker or demarcation between one way of existing in, in one world, let's say, and then in existence in another.
But Truett progressed into uh, to work that was more purely abstract, and it's the abstract work that was featured in her 1963 solo show at Andre Emmerich Gallery. Um, because of Truett's uh, acquaintances with David Smith and Kenneth Nolan, and also the formalist critic Clement Greenberg, Andre Emmerich learned of Truett's work. And in fact, on the day of Morris Lewis's funeral here in Washington, D.C., Emmerich paid a studio visit to Truett and on the spot invited her um, to have a solo show at his New York gallery. A Truett's solo show at Andre Emmerich Gallery in 1963 uh, was significant. It happened in February and um, in fact was a solo show of reduced geometric abstraction that preceded the solo shows of Donald Judd, Robert Morris, and Dan Flavin, artists who came to be considered sort of canonical early figures in the development of the movement that we've come to call minimalism. Those artists had group shows in New York together, but um, had, had, had not had a solo show by the time Truett had her ex exhibition in February 1963. Before we leave the second gallery of Truett's abstract uh, sculptures from the period of 62-63, you might want to take a, a closer look at the piece called Hardcastle. This is the black monolithic sculpture that faces you as you walk into the gallery. And as you, turn, as you come around the sculpture, you see that it's supported in some ways, supported uh, by two red struts at the back. Um, this is a piece that Truett uh, did explicate during her lifetime. And she revealed some information about the title of the piece, Hardcastle. Apparently, Hardcastle was the last name of a gentleman who lived in uh, Easton and who one morning drove his, his car on the railroad, up onto the railroad tracks where it stalled out. Um, apparently he fell asleep and he was killed by the rush of an oncoming train. Now knowing that story gives you a little bit more um, sort of narrative information to apply to the formal elements of the piece um, and perhaps, you know, expands the sculpture in some ways, but certainly that particular anecdote or that particular story should not be used as a way of interpreting the sculpture or sort of finalizing the meaning of the sculpture. It's just one element among many elements that, um, that come to sort of be the meaning of this piece. There's a fairly dramatic change in palette as we move into the next gallery of the exhibition. And in fact, we're jumping over a period of time in Truett's career, um, the years 1964 to 1967. In 1964, Truett and her family moved to um, Tokyo as a result of her husband, who was a journalist, taking a new position there. Um, between 64 and 67, while Truett was living in Japan, she felt a bit dislocated from um, Washington, D.C., and there was also a bit of a dislocation in terms of uh, the materials she was using to produce her sculpture. Uh, up, uh, throughout 62 and 63, Truett was making sculpture out of wood. She had had her armatures fabricated and then brought them back to her studio where she hand-painted them. Once she moved to Tokyo, Truett uh, stopped using wood as an armature for her sculpture and began using aluminum. She also switched to a different kind of synthetic paint. In fact, it was a paint that is used, to, um, used for ship-painting ships. 
later, when, after Truett had returned to the United States in the, early, in the early 1970s when she was preparing for her retrospectives at the Whitney and Corcoran, she made a decision to destroy all of the sculpture that she made in Tokyo, uh, feeling that while it was intelligent work, it was also lifeless work. Um, and this reflects actually some of the criticism that the, the Tokyo period work received when it was exhibited in New York. Um, so unfortunately, we don't actually have any pieces, uh, actual pieces of sculpture to show you from that period, but there are represented in the exhibition some works on paper from this period in Truett's career. And if you stand in front of the three works on paper uh, that are sort of angular forms, uh, brightly colored angular forms, you do get some sense of the shapes and colors that Truett was investigating um, during those years. By 1968, when Truett had returned to Washington, D.C., she also returned to working in wood. And um, she began to kind of refine and develop the technique that she used for applying paint to her sculptures. So um, to, to sort of generalize that process, it began with several coats of gesso and then moved on to applications of white paint and finally ended up with uh, layers of color paint. Um, sometimes there are up to 30 or 40 layers of paint on an individual sculpture. True, it's sanded in between the layers that she applied, and in, in applying those layers of paint, she used her brush first, say, vertically, and applied a layer with vertical brush strokes, and then would alternate with a layer of horizontal brush strokes. So if you get up very close to the surface of the sculpture, you can see um, this sort of network of uh, right angles that are formed with the interlacing brush strokes. Truett also expanded her palette after 1968, uh, pushing into a much brighter colors as well as subtle pastel shades. And um, I think if you spend a moment looking at the four sculptures, uh, the four columns that are lined up in this gallery that have the titles Spring Dryad, Summer Dryad, Autumn Dryad, and Winter Dryad, you get a sense of the compositions that Truett essentially began to follow for the rest of her career. Two of the sculptures, Spring and Autumn Dryad, are essentially monochromatic, um, and they're either capped with a band of color or sort of anchored at the base with a horizontal band of color. And in the case of looking at these sculptures, you can move around the forms and really sort of experience the continuity of composition around all four sides. In Summer Dryad and Winter Dryad, the painted compositional elements are vertical. So different bands of color wrap around the sculpture. And interestingly, they don't necessarily line up with the faces of the sculpture. Sometimes those bands of color sort of span the corners of, a, of one of the artworks. Truett called this technique counterpointing. And it's sort of a very interesting dynamic in which the three-dimensional form and the painted composition are not quite lined up or they sort of um, contrast with one another in a way that I think encourages you to walk all the way around a piece and really experience it um, both visually and bodily. Um, and I would encourage you, uh, when you're engaging with one of these vertical compositions, to stand at a corner and look at that, um, at that perspective as well as standing in front of each of the faces of the sculpture. 
from the corner point of view, those sort of two adjoining faces almost flatten out into a larger composition. So it's almost as if there are eight vantage points to each sculpture rather than just four. Uh, the dryads also provide an interesting opportunity to talk about one of uh, Truett's creative um, models or uh, one of the creative sources that she admired. And that's Marcel Proust and his masterwork in search of lost time. Truett actually helped translate a volume analyzing in search of lost time from the French to the English in 1955. Truett actually hadn't read Mel Marcel Proust's uh, masterwork at the time that she did the translation, but she then went on to read it and uh, certainly cited it as a, an interesting um, complement to her own work in the way that Proust's narrator and Proust himself essentially uses his own life to tell a story that weaves together different moments in time. It's interesting, in volume five of, of In Search of Lost Time, Proust, or, or rather the narrator, talks about um, hearing a musical composition by a favorite composer. And it's a new composition, one that he isn't familiar with, but in the listening to it, he recognizes motifs or strains that he had heard in previous work. And the narrator describes these as the dryads, elements that are unique to a creative individual, um, but also repeat throughout a creative person's uh, body of work. And that these four sculptures are titled the Dryads, I think, is interesting. And it could be an allusion to Proust, because certainly these compositional elements are very unique to Truett's work and do reemerge throughout her career. The sculpture First Requiem, which you encounter in the next gallery, I think is a, a, a great sculpture to really walk around and sort of experience the piece from these various vantage points, front on and uh, from the corner perspective. Uh, this is a piece in which sort of the vertical complexity of Truett's composition is at its height. And in fact, um, Truett called sculptures like this narrative sculptures, which is an interesting term given Truett's background in writing fiction um, and her sort of leaving behind fiction for visual art. Truett applies the word narrative here in the sense that one needs to walk all the way around the sculpture and sort of take with them as they move around the form, the memory, the visual memory of what they've seen before to create sort of a culminative impact um, that triggers an, an emotional response or a perceptual response. In the next gallery, the exhibition breaks the chronology a little bit. Um, you have three works from the 1970s and one work, Avonlea, from the early 1990s. Uh, these pieces are grouped together because of their color sensibilities, which are similar. They're all very subtle um, and beautiful shades of, of pastel colors. Um, I suggest you stop for a moment and take a look at Avonlea um, and really try and determine exactly how many colors of yellow are on the sculpture. Uh, I remember seeing this piece for the first time in a warehouse where the lighting conditions weren't optimal and really questioning whether what I was perceiving in the sculpture actually were colors that were inherent to the sculpture or rather if they were the effects of the sort of play of light and shade in the room. And even though the lighting conditions are certainly better here in the galleries, as you walk around the sculpture, sculpture you'll see that certain aspects of it are in shadow and others are in uh, more full light. And 
I think, you know, it's just very interesting that, that Truett's sculptures are sort of saturated, they're completely dense with, with perceptual information. Um, and then sort of all the complexities and nuances of the environment around them also create a whole another layer, a whole another sort of um, network of complexities of perceptual experience. And those two things interact together in terms of one's experience of the sculpture. In addition to, um, to making painted sculpture, Truett also produced paintings during her life. And you're seeing a particular series called the Arundels in this next gallery. Truett, in her writing, um, described these, these pieces as some of the, the works that were closest to the heart of her conceptual practice. And um, she further went on to describe them as sort of making visible the unseen forces that operate in our universe and operate in our world, sort of um, acting in some ways as the engine of the dynamics between people and between ex experiences and between occurrences. You need to get very close to these paintings to really see what's going on. Um, they are quite minimal and uh, really defined in some ways only by slight lines of graphite with uh, white paint brushed on in very sort of dense ways in some areas and very washed, washy ways, I'll say, in others. In the following gallery, you have a grouping of five works, which include pieces from the 1990s and then three works produced towards the end of Truett's life. Truett passed away in December 2004. Um, the exhibition actually doesn't include any large-scale sculpture from the 1980s. That is because Drew produced less sculpture in this decade than in others. And that's because, uh, in many ways, Truett's creative activity was channeled toward the books that she published um, at this time. These are the first two of a series of three autobiographical journals called Daybook, Turn, and Prospect uh, that really chronicle Truett's well, I should say chronicle some aspects of Truett's life as well as some of her, the thinking behind her work and her activities as an artist. Uh, in this gallery, you see that the, the sort of forms um, of the sculpture are quite uniform. They are an 81-inch high by 8-inch wide by 8-inch deep format. And this is a format that Truett sort of settled on in the last, uh, the last years of her career. Um, Again, we have both sort of the vertical composition uh, in which one really needs to walk all the way around the sculpture to experience it fully demonstrated here, as well as primarily monochromatic compositions. This gallery gives us a, a chance to talk about some of the correspondences or equivalences that Truett saw in her work to other aspects of the world. For instance, um, Truett was quite inter interested in geography and uh, interested in sort of the, the dynamic between lines of longitude and lines of latitude. So one can think about that as we look at these, these uh, sculptures, which in some ways continue to be markers of location or markers of placement, just as those early works of, of first and southern elegy were. Truett also talked about how her sculpture um, conveyed a sense of the line of gravity that holds a human body sort of grounded on the earth, but sort of erect and reaching up towards the sky. And um, certainly, not only these columns, but others of Truett's sculptures convey that sense of both rootedness and lift.
It's interesting too, uh, in terms of, of orientation and sort of location, that in some of Truett's working drawings for her sculptures, the four faces of the sculpture flatten out uh, as if uh, one was flattening out a globe to a map. And she designated the individual sides of the pieces uh, north, east, south, and west. So um, was essentially sort of conceptually thinking about those kind of geographic coordinates as in a way she mapped out the compositions um, and kept track of the coats of paint for her sculptures. Um, certainly that's not a literal correspondence. It's just, uh, it's just an interesting note of, uh, it's just interesting to note the way that Truett um, kept ge geographical coordinates in her mind as she was making the sculptures. Truett also produced a series of smaller scaled sculptures during her life. Um, she began to make these in the 1960s, and we have a piece from 1962 on view in the exhibition. Um, but primarily, uh, she started a, a series in the early 1970s called the Parvas, which she continued up to the last years of her life. And these, these Parvas, uh, that word Parva is Latin for small thing, are fully realized sculptures. They're not models or maquettes for a larger work. Um, and in essence, they're compositions that Truett felt best realized at a smaller scale. Truett worked on the Parvas um, at times at Yaddo, an artist residency in Saratoga Springs, which she visited uh, frequently from the 1970s on. And in fact, during the 1980s, she served as acting executive director of Yaddo. Another important institutional affiliation for Truett was the University of Maryland in College Park. Truett, um, came to influence a great number of students uh, with her teaching both in drawing and a special seminar that she held that brought literary, um, and a special semi seminar class that she held that um, sort of brought literary references to the study of visual arts. The final gallery of the exhibition once again breaks chronology slightly. Most of the works are from the 2000s, but there is one piece, Full Fathom Five, from the early 1970s. Um, again, this is, this is kind of to group formally similar work together, and also to echo the beginning of the exhibition and show that while Truett has been celebrated as a colorist uh, throughout her life, she also continued to explore darker hues, and particularly um, black, in her artwork. This gallery also gives us an opportunity to share a series of works uh, that Truett started producing in 2001, when she was 80 years old. They're, they're somewhat difficult works, I think, to wrap one's head around. Uh, Truett called the series The Pith, and these are works in which she took canvas and deliberately unraveled the edges and then painted both sides of the canvas with thick black paint um, and brush strokes that are very visible on the surface. Oftentimes she folded these pieces of canvas so you see ridges and lines uh, where the canvas in some senses have been, has been distressed. Uh, as I said, they're painted on both sides. We do know sort of which side is down because Truett signed the, the back of the work, if you will. And um, they're displayed flat rather than uh, 
framed and on the wall like a painting. And particularly because of this orientation, I think that the works really hover in between painting and sculpture. They have three-dimensional aspects as well as two-dimensional aspects. It's interesting to, when considering these pieces to think of the horizontal and vertical brushstrokes that had defined Truett's sculpture for so many years and to perhaps question whether the pulling apart of the sort of vertical and horizontal lines of canvas relates in some way to sort of unraveling those brushstrokes of Truett's earlier forms. Um, I think it's also interesting to look at these works and think of abstract expressionist painting, not just of Ad Reinhardt and Barnett Newman, but others like Mark Rothko, um, and sort of see the brushstrokes as expressive gestures of emotion, just as they are in abstract expressionist painting. Uh, it's also interesting to look at the work, and as I've said, to think of it as something that's a hybrid of painting and sculpture, and think of sort of the... Um, the history of abstract sculpture and abstract painting in America during the time that Truett matured as an artist and how uh, critical to that period in, in history was the debate between keeping ideas of painting and sculpture separate and pure from one another, um, sort of butting up against the idea that there can be a hybridization of painting and sculpture. I think Truett certainly was on the forefront of sort of crossing these boundaries between these specific artistic disciplines of painting and sculpture. So looking at the piss and thinking back at the rest of the show, uh, I feel that uh, it's important to recognize Truett as, a, as really a pioneer of American abstraction who pursued a very independent course and didn't necessarily fit comfortably within the color field artist uh, with whom she was associated in Washington, nor the minimalist artists who um, sort of came to really dominate the discourse around reduced geometric abstraction during the time that Truett was working. Um, and I do think that, that Truett's independence and pursuit of a very unique way of creating paintings in three dimensions needs to be celebrated.